This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's good, bro? <laughs> you know what's coming, right? I'm going to just let that slide because I'm in such a good mood. We, we, in a, we in a mood right here. If folks could see us now. Exactly. And yeah. we in a mood because we in the same space. Like, yes. That's what's going face on. Face to face. <laughs> like, my goodness, you would, you would be surprised how rarely we get to record face to face. Yep. So, it's always behind a, a computer and a mic in a closet or in some weird office or... So buckle in because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I have to say, so we're in a, in a beautiful city of Chicago getting prepped for the Joy and Justice Conference, the Witness, the first ever Witness National Conference, October us, 4th and 5th, <laughs> trying to get all these details worked out. That Pray that God opens the, the doors. <laughs> fund the conference. Yeah, to fund the conference. Uh, you know how people go take that clip. You and know, just use yeah, it. because anti-racism work pays. Not like, really we just not, out here no. living. Right. Anyway, you are, but I'm not, you know Whatever. what I'm saying? So Whatever. we just funneling up, you know, it's a... It's a <laughs> <laughs> see, see what I mean? When we get face to face. So anyway, so we here in Chicago... We're on the third floor of a really uh, dope situation. So I'm just letting you know we're right next to the train. So if you just hear the train shoot by, like, you know what's up. We're going to try to pause and work around it. But the reality is we out here. It's just know we out here. It's ambiance. So I got to tell you, when we're speaking about ambiance, we have to talk about Black History Month. We did not get a chance to get on the mic together and talk about the most tumultuous Black History Month in recent memory. Jamar, what was good with Black History Month? What was good with all this blackface? What was good with oh all these KKK goodness. hoods? What yeah. was good with all these white savior films? What was good with this? Wasn't man? nothing good about it. <laughs> <laughs> and the timing was horrible. The timing was miserable. It was like for the first seven to nine days of Black History Month, you had another issue of like public racism come out and the biggest thing that dominated like the first week was governor ralph northam yes blackface oh i was in blackface i'm sorry oh no it wasn't me or but actually i did i don't know if it was blackface or the kkk hood or (laughs) yeah and then then so we were like everybody was like oh okay well let's get behind the black man but lieutenant governor and then it comes out that there's me too allegations against him so they're working through all that and impeachment what that would look like and so like well and that's the a bummer general he just basically was like yo i did blackface one time <laughs> like, <laughs> let me get out in front of you this you know one. how you just like ah it was me it was me it was me you know what i'm saying and i was like yeah. nobody is saying anything to you Dude. but you're like ah well you know i just want to let y'all can know we, just can in we, case can we looking. probe this because i know we got another topic but can we probe this real quick go ahead okay so the idea of like going back in yearbooks and 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 pulling receipts. How you feel about that, bro? How do you feel about that? 
I know that people can change, right? So I'm not a huge fan of, okay, this happened in high school and it's 30 years later and now you're basically saying, well, you were a racist then, you're a racist now and forever, sure. right? I think we gotta I think we gotta understand things better than that, right? But at the same time, I think it's a valuable exercise. I think it's a valuable exercise for colleges and universities, and I think it's a valuable exercise in particular for Christian institutions. So whether it's a Christian college or university or or whatever, because it's humbling. Yeah. It's humbling. Yeah. It forces us to look in the mirror of who we are or who our institutions have been. And then the next step is not just say, oh, well, here it is. It's out there. You make restitution. Hmm. You use that as an impulse and an impetus to actually make anti-racist changes right now. Now, does that happen? Not as often as it should. Right. But still, I think it's humbles, it, it, it humbles us as a nation to see how pervasive it is because this is a democratic governor we're talking about, right? right? Like, this wouldn't be a surprise for most people if this is a far-right politician. But this, this is going to cut across a lot of different people across the sort of ideological spectrum. So, you know, what's interesting, I feel, though, is that it turns into this weird exercise of trying to find skeletons in closets. And so I feel, I feel mixed about it because I think every one of us would say that there is something, there are things that we have done or things in our past that we are not proud of, that we, we bought into problematic ideologies or we had unformed thoughts that got out there. And I mean, that's something that's very present with us, especially on a podcast because it's recorded and people can access it. <laughs> Don't and give so, nobody you any know ideas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's just reality. And so yeah. that's something that we have to live in. But at the same time, I feel like there's levels to this. Yes. And there's one it's one thing to say, "Oh, I'm ashamed of what happened in my past." It's another thing to say that past includes me being, you know, mocking, you know, black pain and suffering by wearing a KKK hood. And so it's almost like, man, when this stuff catches up with you, it's like the the theory of, you know, a, a theology of, you know, that which you sow, you'll reap. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Like yeah. it's it's a theology of of sowing and reaping. It's a theology of, you know, if you build if you build your house on a myth, hmm. that it's going to come crashing down at some point in time. And so I think yeah. that was maybe even more so the thing with Northam because that was a very racially charged campaign. And when you build your house on the idea that you are the better racial candidate, mm -hmm. or you are the better mm -hmm. candidate on race, mm -hmm. or you're less problematic than someone else, and that becomes a campaign push, and then it's revealed that, no, you you are the man, yeah. <laughs> then it comes crashing down and life yeah. comes at you fast. Well, my thing is, when it comes to racism in particular, there are so many individuals and institutions that want to pretend like racism didn't happen. Hmm. Like it's not part of their history or their organization's history. And so to me, going back on this particular issue, right? Like this is not a, a sort of smear campaign. Anybody sure, I don't like, yeah. I'm going back and I'm checking their history, whatever, whatever. This is more like America has yet to come to grips with its racist past and present and this is one of the ways where it comes out like, no, we have pictures. You cannot deny this. And that's what I'm looking for is this. You cannot deny this moment. You cannot minimize this moment mm -hmm. type of thing. This happened. We have photographic evidence. Is you here? You have to answer for it. Either you answer for it and say, this was me then. Here's how I've changed. Or you answer for it and be like, well, you know, it's really hard to prove that I've right. moved 
all that much in terms of my position on this. So, so it's just the fact that America and Americans continue to deny the severity or the prevalence. That's mm. another thing. This yeah. is going to transcend regional boundaries. It's not mm. going to be a Southern thing. It's not going to be a Republican thing. It's not, not, not going to be a, a male thing even. It's going to transcend so many boundaries in ways that, that are sort of really difficult. Right. To to try to stand there and say no, it didn't happen. But I think you're you're touching on a really good point with the severity aspect, because when we talk about severity, when we talk about how serious it is for the people who you've harmed and affected, we cannot minimize that. And I think so much of the repudiation of don't go back and look at other people because it was you yourself. It focuses on the person in question and not the fallout or the consequences of the people who were affected by it, say that. which is the the function of a racist, unjust, oppressive society, which is to cause you to focus on individuals who are in power and who have privilege. It causes you to think about the people who are celebrities and powerful instead of focusing on uh, the people who were survivors or victims of their acts. And so that's one thing that happened in Black History Month. And I'm glad you stopped there because I think that's an important, that's actually going to be an episode. So I want to, <laughs> I want to save it and then kind of dive into what's our theology of, of history. What's our theology of past sin? You know, that's uh-huh. something that we need to kind of work through, but there's some other things that happen on black history month as well. So we had the whole Jesse Smollett situation, uh, which yeah. has been a roller coaster ride of trying to figure out what happened, what didn't happen. I'm not actually sure we even still know what happened. Well, he just got indicted on 16 felony counts today. Yeah, like I'm not even... record, yeah. I haven't actually read the story to know what happened. So it's like, whoa, that was crazy. And it's trying to figure that out in the contrast of bring up legitimate attacks, <laughs> whether it's racism, whether it's you know targeting people for their sexual orientation, all these things. And you're like, whoa, this happened really quickly. And and I had a thought process that something was off, but then I didn't really know. And so I was like, man, this is a this is a very interesting story. And it felt off from the beginning. You had that, and then you had um various clothing companies that would oh, come out man. with blackface. Wow. And number one, I mean, I don't know why we're we're even worried necessarily in some senses about like a Gucci, like well, I'm not shopping at Gucci. <laughs> like, you know, I don't have no Gucci, Gucci slippers. <laughs> like I don't have any, I can't afford anything in Gucci. So it's like, uh, but at the same time I get it right. Like yeah, I get the yeah. idea of power and I get the idea of these companies that have platforms should have resources that, have dignifying clothing that don't just mock a very yeah. These aren't like history. subtle flubs. I mean, yeah, this, exactly. This is like a blackface sweater, a black blackface slippers, and all these companies have a lot of cachet in the black community. So it's like you know, these are a lot of entertainment people sort of hyping your brand and then you go and do this really racially insensitive thing. It doesn't don't make no sense. And then you you drop it during Black History Month. Come on. Now, has there ever been this rough and tumultuous of a Black History Month that you can remember? There were so many other things. Like we can't even yeah. we can't even get into all the things. But has there ever been this tumultuous of a Black History Month? Right. I mean, it's hard to compare, right? But I think you can talk about context. Right. Because we're in the midst of this presidency, which y'all, I just like we can't underestimate just what this is doing to our democracy, to sort of our national story or stories, and certainly within the church, um, you know, between people of color and and white folks in the church in particular. So all of that, like we're just we're just bombarded with 
images and events and statements that speak to our disunity and mm-hmm. tension and strife, not to create an artificial unity that where there isn't one, but all these reminders of how different and we are and how far apart we are in our understandings. And then you have this string of events that was just so mm-hmm. concentrated yeah. within a month that's supposed to be Black-centered. Well, and let me get into that, because this is what I wanted to, for us to talk about, this idea of Black holidays, Black History Month, MLK Day. It's strange because, and don't get me wrong, we've talked about these things positively. We've done special you know, campaigns or special education blog segments, special podcasts on this. I do think it serves a purpose, but I, I feel that early on, I felt that Black History Month was being used now as this really weird trivia, Mm. like black trivia, which is a part of it, but it's almost like, you know, know who invented this and know who marched here and know who started this organization and know who was the first black this and the first black that and the first black the other thing. And it became weird because it's almost like you can know the facts, but not understand the context. And so it felt like this weird trivia, but we weren't going to take any of the principles that they use and apply them. We're just going to, you should know who this person is. And it's like, great. And then you give me a, a three sentence, four sentence cliff notes on this person. And we take this nice picture and we post it just to show our friends like, oh, see, I care about you. Like I care about, there's this like weird thing going around with churches where they post Black History Month, like Black History Month, they post like that one thing and they say nothing about it for the rest of the month. Mm. It's like, well, what are you as a church doing to value the black congregants both inside your church and then outside your church? And how are you making amends for your church's history? And how are you talking about the land that your church has and the money that your church has accrued? Talking about predominantly white churches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, specifically white churches. Like, how are you doing that? How are you? How are you addressing? Like, there are churches that I know that have previously banned interracial, performing interracial marriages just three, four decades ago. But now they're talking about Black History Month. And I'm like, what? Like, how does this work itself out if you're not willing to address the latent biases and principles that exist within your organization? And so it's weird to me because I feel like we've turned Black History Month into this, who knows the most about the Blacks? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, this is not what Black History Month is supposed to be about. It's, become it's supposed a, to understand our, what did you it's say? It's become a trivial pursuit. <laughs> Yo, you, can, you, cancel for that. you cancel for the rest of this podcast. I'm canceling for the next like 30 minutes. It made minutes. sense. You know it made sense. Nah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I was on a flow and you like, ah, we gave a trivial pursuit. I can't record in the same room as you, bro. Because he saw I was serious and intense to get revved up. But my thought process is this, like, if if we're going to do a Black History Month, if we're going to talk about Black people, we should be talking about the expanse of Black people within the context of where they lived and what they did and the struggles and all those things to inform how we live now. And that's one side of it. And then the second side is it it becomes this holiday that highlights exceptional Blackness. And there's something that's good in that. But the Black History Month premise is that we would highlight exceptional blackness to prove to people that we were legit. I mean, y'all know we did the toilet, right? Like y'all know we did the toaster oven and y'all know we would we was the ones who made the launch happen for NASA. You see, y'all should like us. Y'all should like. And it's like, wait a minute. Now, this feels weird because it feels like 
we're highlighting exceptional black people as proof to the larger society that we're legitimate. We should already know that even without our quote unquote accomplishments, if, even if we didn't invent something, even if we weren't the first of whatever. And it seems like this transactional sense of let's elevate the really exceptional people. We're not going to talk about the context in which they did things. And then that is going to impact me exactly zero with how I interact with my black neighbors and Mm -hmm. with, you know, the black people that go to my church and with the people who are in my kids' school. I don't know. Is that making sense? Is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. With with the trivia stuff, that's totally out there. And then you put out these, quote unquote, black facts, black history facts. But then you apply nothing of what, you know, like the perseverance, the, the, the study the hard work that it took for all these black firsts or these black exceptional achievements, nor do you recognize, like you're saying, the holistic context. So Black History Month starts out as Negro History Week in the 1920s with Carter G. Woodson, and it was a corrective to the concerted attempt on behalf of the powers that be in academia and those who had money and the thought leaders of the day to actually whitewash history. And so there were a bunch of black people who were like, no, 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 we in here. And y'all not talking about us. And so we're actually going to create a space where we can talk about our contributions to this nation, which, by the way, have been ample (laughs) from from enslavement and literally building this country into what it is today Mm -hmm. to other achievements in the arts or, or, or literature or the academy or acting or whatever it might be. And so it it is black history now, black history month is an attempt to remind a nation that is intent on marginalizing, forgetting, or erasing Black contributions, particularly in the past, because if you go back, what it highlights is America's white supremacy and racism. Hmm. And that's a reality that many people today just want to skip over. They may not say it that way, Hmm. but by not remembering all of the ugliness, the harshness, the brutality of the reality that we and our ancestors, right? Like, like we can talk from a position of relative privilege as educated black folks, uh, folks who, who, who have food on the table and roof over our heads. But you know what? Our parents and our grandparents and, and even relatives now are living in the midst of situations that are beyond their control mm-hmm. due to the way systems and institutions have been set up to systematically disadvantage black people. And it is in the midst of that history, that context, that present and reality that we assert black history matters, mm. that yeah. black history is American history and that we need to take time and pause. But I'm totally with you because that's not really the way we practice Black History Month right, right now. And, and you know, what, what's funny about that is there's so many things about that I want to pull on. There's this sense in which people share these Black History facts and it's it's this weird elitism sense that people say, oh, well, I could have never oppressed him. Like, you know, I could have never, we would have gotten along, like he would have been great. It's almost like, Man, you I mean, you invented stuff. You were gifted. You were amazing at math. You were a genius. Oh, man. Well, well, of course. No. Well, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about what is asserting the black, the dignity of the black populace in mass, Mm -hmm. not just a few exceptional black people who Mm -hmm. you would have been friends with because they would have given utility to your cause. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, we're friends. Like, wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Because you see me as 
as a tool for your progress. You see me as, oh, well, you contributed something that's going to make me money. Or you enhanced our company. Or you made our church diverse. Great. You know, uh, we love you. Well, yeah. What do you love about me? Mm. Do you love me or do you love the fact that I produce? Mm. Do you love me or do you love my production? Do you love, do, do you want that that which is produced through me and out of me through what God has given me? Or do you want to love and appreciate the person? Because it is, it is your whole self that I love yeah. or a part of you. That's like one thing. And then the second thing is it belies the fact that even as we share all these exceptional black people, by and large, the exceptional black people were not convincing white structures that they existed in. True. Even through their, even their, even after they were exceptional. Yeah. Even after they were exceptional, people still <laughs> didn't think. Like if you look at the track of how people talk about certain inventors and gifted black people and statesmen, you're like, man, they were amazing. And they still got killed. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like they still were beaten. Yeah. And Medgar ever still got shot. Yeah. And Dr. King was still assassinated. And Fannie Lou Hamer was still beaten. It's like when you talk about all those things, you're you're talking about these people in a sense, in a vacuum that says they were legitimate. And you forget that the ancestors of this country, the people in power within this country didn't care. That's and they right. still marginalized. Them. It didn't matter how exceptional somebody was. For so many people, it didn't. It didn't remove the cage of racism. Yeah. And 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 uh, the shackles of slavery or segregation or bigotry. And so here, here's my my thought process. My theory is why I brought this up. My theory is that you know, I think one of the functions of an unjust society is to take what was once subversive and use it against your progress. Hmm. Say that. Say that. I think that, you know, and and let me give you a practical example. So we talk about um, racial reconciliation. When when our organization first started, we talked a lot about racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation. Do we talk about racial reconciliation now? Nah. That's not something we really talk about because that term got, you know, quote unquote colonized because a lot of people grab that term and then turn it into, oh, the racial reconciliation. It's not to say we don't believe in reconciliation because that's a biblical word. It's not to say we don't believe that racial reconciliation is possible. It's that what was once groundbreaking and subversive for the church, people show it up and said, oh, I know what this means and ignored you. So now we talk about racial justice, right? Now we're talking about justice. Now we're talking about liberation. Um, in the same way now, this idea of mass incarceration, right? So you have mass incarceration, which is groundbreaking concept, the new Jim Crow. And we're even seeing it now with um, reparations. Ta-Nehisi Coates and reparations, yes, right? He yes. writes the case for reparations. And then a white New York Times column, <laughs> columnist slides in, oh, the case for reparations eight years later. Right, you know? right, it's right, like, right, right. Wait, what? <laughs> it's it's like, hold up, like, yeah. like, how does this work? And it's not to say that people can't change. It's not to say that people can't use terms. It's more so to say that it's, it's the subversive function of white supremacy to take that which would have advanced us and would have been groundbreaking and now just switch it against us and use it to prop themselves up. And we're seeing that with mass incarceration now, right? So we're seeing with mass incarceration, now people are saying, oh, well, the, the Republican Party is the party that's pushing mass in- incarceration, is, is pushing prison reform, and it's the best on this. And, and it's like, man, I don't see any evidence that that's truly the case, even with 
the bills that are being passed because the rhetoric hasn't changed and the leader hasn't changed. And there's like so many questions I have, but now it's like, oh, well, we can pass a bill and we can basically take this off the board. So now people feel subconscious or self-conscious about talking about mass incarceration because it's like, oh, well, now this is your issue. Now I can't speak to it. Now it's, it, and so I think that's one of the functions of an unjust society. So is there even a utility for a Black History Month? Right. Are there utility, is there utility for these holidays that we're celebrating and these moments and we can pare it down these panel discussions and these conferences and these is there a function is there a function for these things now because what they're in what they're doing is they're actually setting us back because they're pushing the conversation in a way it shouldn't be going Mm -hmm. they're they're not giving fullness to the conversation but they're actually being used as tools against us and i think black people are implicated too Right. Like, oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we. I mean, goodness gracious. Absolutely. So, so, so we drink the Kool Aid, or or we're just sort of un- uncritical consumers, and we do the same thing. That which was once subversive now becomes commonplace, and is no longer disruptive in an unjust society. And and we can feed into that in all kinds of ways if we're not careful. Is there utility in it? I think. So, but what it forces us to do is constantly define and even redefine or reapply that which what was familiar or old, right? So it's it's not 1926 anymore. Yeah. It's not 1956. It's 2019. So what Black History Month looks like and means in 2019 is probably different than it was 50 or 75 years ago. Hmm. And so have we really thought about what it should be now versus what it has been? Because what it has been is this unearthing of black facts that we haven't known about. That information's readily accessible. It's certainly not widespread enough. American history yeah. in general, we have an ignorance of. And I, know, put- I, I just I remembered I'm talking to the historian about, <laughs> about do, black is there even a function of black history? Do we even need yeah, to do this? Yeah. Well, I actually think we see some positive signs in ways that don't show up necessarily in Black History Month. So one of the things that really attracted me to the academic study of history was historians commenting on current events. Hmm. And particularly in my case around Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and giving context to redlining and racial steering and restrictive covenants as well as the origins of the police force like that is stuff that I just even as an adult wasn't hip on game I didn't know right and and I think that is a very um, perennial function of history is to bring context to current events not that historians need to be prognosticators of the future we we major in the past but we can bring context to what's happening and why it's happening. And I think if we think about Black History Month, partially in those terms, right, you take a particular issue like mass incarceration, how do we get here, what led up to it, X, Y, Z. And beyond that, which is what you started out saying, are we applying these principles? Are we learning right. from the Black experience to continue the struggle for human dignity and progress? So there's there's a outward-facing element and then there's an in-group element. There's an inward-facing element amongst people within the black community, which is how do we make sure that our space is authentic? Hmm. And in a, in a certain sense, how do we make sure that we are, we are unapologetically black? And that matters because, you know, one of our core tenets here at The Witness is that we are a black Christian collective. And we use those words very specifically. We use the word black and we talk about black-centeredness not to mean that we are exclusive not to mean that we're separatists, 
but more so to mean that the first question we're asking is not how do our white brothers and sisters and the white majority around us, how will they view what we are about to do and say and participate in, but more so does what we're doing and saying and participating in advance the liberation and freedom of our people first, that that's the first question. So we recenter the questioning. Mm -hmm. So we challenge our original premise for hesitation. And so we, we say, if I'm worried about how someone is thinking, I need to interrogate myself Mm -hmm. to figure out, am I worried because it's violating scripture? Am I worried because it's violating a tenant of my church? Or am I worried because it's going to make people uncomfortable? It's going to make people feel a certain way. I'm going to have to moderate my comment section. I'm going to have to turn this down. I'm going to lose this opportunity. And so I think there's a sense in which the blackness that we're talking about, the black centeredness that we're talking about is important because it is the fullness of which God has created us in. And so because of that, we cannot fully be ourselves if we deny who he's created us to be. And most importantly, even the location that he's placed us in, the time that he's placed us in, um, ordering Acts 17, the the boundaries of our habitation mm-hmm. so that we would seek him and find him because he's not far from any of us. That idea that God has placed us in a moment in history Hmm. because he knew we needed to be here in this moment, yeah. not just for the people around us, but for us mm. so that we seek him and find him. Right. And that's, that's great. That's, that's encouraging. You know, that's the Christian element of the black Christian collective. But I think there's a sense in which we must remain black and we must remain unapologetically black because it is important for us never to forget who we are and allow someone else to define us. That's right. Which is, and you see this in culture, right? I'm a youth pastor. When when I start doing a dance, they left that dance, right? <laughs> like when I start doing when I start oh. doing a dance as a as an old youth pastor. I'm not old, but as an older <laughs> yeah. youth pastor, my kids move on from that. They're like ah try to floss one time they're like ah gee like, <laughs> they never gonna do that again right but we we feel that about in group out group with white majority when we do something they come in they're like yeah this is dope you're like <laughs> you're like wait a minute like because it's not that they can't say that it's more so we want to make sure that we're we have space that isn't invaded or that isn't doesn't naturally push us out when we created the thing that you're enjoying mm, right mm. And so what does it look like to be unapologetically black? What does it look like to be truly, the issue isn't the history part of black history, man. Maybe it's the black. <laughs> maybe, wow. it's, maybe it's not, maybe it's lowercase. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it needs to be all caps. So I hadn't thought about that before. Like that the, the, the issue might be with the blackness of Black History Month, whether it is <laughs> still black, right? Because... It has been sort of promulgated on such a broad scale and so many people. Is it people, not even for us now? Yeah, is it not even for us now? And and there's a sense in which uh, Black History Month was always outward facing because we wanted people to know our history. Yes. But has it become so sort of cliche and so tamed that it's no longer uh, subversive like we were talking about before? Uh, so I think that's, a, that's, an, that's an intriguing question. And how do you blackenize Black History Month? Right? <laughs> well, but it, it more so deals with, and I think the question is more so aimed toward spaces. Yeah. And it's more so aimed toward organizations or churches or institutions or universities or what have you, like spaces where black people would exist and then would have 
freedom. You know what? Yeah, that gives me a, a, a thought, right? Like, so Carter G. Woodson um, founded, was one of the founders of uh, ASALA, African, American Society for African Literature and History. Mm-hmm. So that organization is super old, decades old, right? And it, it, if any organization owns Black History Month, it's that organization because yeah. Carter G. Woodson was part of it. They've continued that legacy for decades and decades. And so in terms of space, and I think this is what organizations like The Witness or folks like us can do is big up organizations like Asala. Not that they need us, hmm. but actually going to them for the sources and the resources. And when they put on events during Black History Month and the people that they're talking about sharing their content. And so because right now you can just, you know, you can pull a picture from the web and you can go to Wikipedia and grab two or three sentences and put your own stuff out there. But what does it look like to essentially patronize black organizations that are doing this work year round during Black History Month and giving exposure because they're creating space on a on a constant basis for these kinds of conversations. That's really interesting. And that's actually an action plan that can be used practically for a black community or a black church. Um, you know, there was a church in DC that recently for their opening fast, it was in January they opened the year with the fast as most churches do. And then there was a challenge to give an offering at the end of that fast. And they did and ended up giving a hundred thousand dollars to Howard university students to pay off their, their school tuition so that, you know, a certain number of students school tuition so that they could graduate um, from, from college, you know? And it's like, that's actually something where you, what you've done is you've, poured into an institution. It's not to say they were the only institution that could be poured into. It's the same thing with, you know, a church in Atlanta doing that with Bennett College, right? Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. millions of dollars being poured into these institutions, they pour them into these institutions and now people remember that. So it's almost like there has to be a pipeline. Yes. There has to be a pipeline of black authenticity and there has to be a pipeline that connects to the, the true origins and the true intent of why this institution or this group or this holiday or this month was created in the first place. And if we don't That's create good. that, it will die on the vine or it will become colonized or it'll turn into something that it wasn't intended to be because what ultimately it's doing is we're, we're losing control of That's that right. space. That's right. And I messed up the acronym before. It's the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Uh, but yeah, they are their tagline is the founders of Black History Month. And so that's one of the things like we go back to these organizations that have done the work and are doing right. the work and are black centered all the time. Uh, and that's just one one aspect of it. But I think it's simply a good probing question to say to what extent is Black History Month still for black people? Right. And, and that's, again, not in an exclusivistic sense but in a sense that still makes space to honor and uplift and dignify black people in, you know, the 21st century here and now right. without it becoming because so diluted. We, need, we right. need that we space. We still need it. Yes. We still, we will always need that space because of the, the difference of the population within the country. We will always need the in-group space. We'll always need the space to work these things out within our community and to have tough conversations and to challenge and to encourage and to uplift and to cry and to be our full selves in that. I'm just big on that in this season of my life. Being my full, yeah. my full self. There you Can go. I be my full self there in this you place? Go. 
and it's it's weird because you record a podcast and people see us and they hear us talk, but just because you hear us doesn't mean we're being our full selves. My, I will never be my full self on past the mic because my family will get a side of me that the, the podcast won't. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Should, it's like, that's just a okay. natural reaction of yeah. what, but I think people can sometimes think that's just being overtly black. That's like, we, we were having this conversation about what does it mean to be black centered? Oh, we're just black everywhere. And we just, we, we just have this competition. It's not, it's not an elaborate, what did I say it was? It's not an elaborate project to like prove how black we are. Right. To cement our black authenticity with the masses. <laughs> it's more so to say, can we be our full selves? Because God created us not to disembody our theology, not to remove our bodies from the life that we live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not yeah. to have like a Sunday morning and then we go and then we have other stuff that we do, but that it's infused in who we are and it's natural. And an embodied theology, what does that look like for us? And I really saw that most clearly at at an HBCU. Hmm. So I've been in, in, in terms of education in PWIs most of the time, predominantly white institutions. And when I took uh, classes at an HBCU, even though I was a graduate student, uh, observing the undergrads, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, because there, where almost everybody's black, race is less salient an issue. It's not that people don't think about it. It's not that mm-hmm. when you step off campus, you still not in a very white supremacist world, right? It's not like it goes away completely, but it's not the first thing you're thinking about in the classroom or interacting with your peers. And so there's space for you to bring different aspects of yourself Mm. that you can't really bring in predominantly white environments. So you have like the skaters, you have the geeks, you have the athletes, you have the activists, all these different groups just being themselves where it's so much harder when you're a very small minority in a predominantly white institution, whether that's a school or a church or any other organization, when you are such a small minority that you automatically get lumped together as basically all the same. Uh, Any differences are flattened out in the sort of black white dynamic. Uh, But when it's just us, when there's a space for just us, you have the ability to express different parts of yourself. Not that it's a, a utopia in any sense, but it was refreshing. There's a funny story that we'll close with. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I've ever even told you this story. I, I may have mentioned it on the podcast. I'm trying to think if I did. You heard it here, folks. No, but it's, it's not <laughs> one of those. So we had this association conference for our church like a few years uh, ago, and it was at our current church building and that church building actually has some connection to the association, but it was, it was like a, like it's, it's like a very weird story of how it happened. So like they left that building and then we ended up getting the building from the church that was there. And it was just like this crazy web of, Oh, you guys are at the building that basically started our church association, but we didn't have ownership of it now. And, you know, and so they're like, can we do our annual conference there? And we're like, yeah, sure. But you know, we are a black church, you know, and the association's majority white. And so, I mean, what are we going to be able to do? Like, you're coming in our space, you know, and we had that conversation. They were very receptive to it. And they said, you know, for the second night, you guys just do we want you to be normal, we want you to be as you are. You know, we'll have your pastor speak and everything is as you are. Right. And you can't really this this noble, but you can't really do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you can't Dynamics really do that in a, in a in a ninety percent, ninety five percent white audience yeah. when it's normally ninety percent black. You know, right. so 
it was it was interesting. But so the day before, or no, it was the same day, I spoke to the all the ministers and pastors. So I spoke to the ministers and pastors on a topic that was non-race related. So it was like a theology of the Holy Spirit, you know, it's like a pneumatology topic. And so we talked about that pneumatology for the next generation, basically. Mm. So like how a millennial audience would perceive being in a spirit filled space and kind of unpacking that very heady, like, you know, I spent a lot of time working on it. It was that type of thing. Awesome. And then that night I, we, we, we led in and started with our step team. And so we have a step team. And so I was in the step team. Oh, I didn't know you stepped. I mean, stepped in college and all that, you know, but, (laughs) but that's like a thing. And so that's like a black church. Some black churches have like a step. People are like, what? Like you have a step team? Like it's like, but it's actually a great conversation starter in black spaces. Hmm. It's like a phenomenal conversation starter. If you step into a a low income environment and you start stepping and people have no idea Hmm. what's happening and they ask you questions and it creates a conversation. That's just like the mentality. And so a guy came up to me, like one of the head guys in the association. And he said, wow. He said, man, I was telling your dad that, Earlier today, I was so just encouraged and challenged by what you were saying because it was so rich and deep and the study was amazing. He's like, but I looked up there tonight and I was like, is that the same person? And I was like, and I laughed and I I put my head back and laughed and I tapped my dad on the, on the, on the, the arm. And I said, I said this to my dad in front of him. I said, he doesn't think we can do both. Wow. <laughs> That's it. I said, he doesn't think we can, he doesn't know our range. He doesn't think we can do that and be physical. Mm. He doesn't think we can argue and debate and talk about the, the nuances of the text and dissect public policy and dunk a basketball. He doesn't think we can do both. And so I sat back and I said, isn't it crazy that now I feel at the altar that I minister at every single week, I feel like an outsider. Whoa. Isn't that crazy? And I was like, we're never doing this again. And, I mean, people may listen to this from that association. I love you. But we're never doing this again. Because we don't, the space wasn't built for that. Yeah. Wow. Our church isn't built to to not be ourselves. We're not built to disembody our theology. Mm. We are built to be embodied. We are built to be the ones who can pray and laugh and cook and protest and preach and do inductive yeah. Bible study yeah, and yeah, disciple yeah. and step and dance and play instruments and do it. That's do good. everything that God has gifted us to do without thinking that that's no longer, oh, do black people do that? Or is that you? You know, so it was just it was just a weird, I never told you that story. And it was just a little interesting anecdote that ties into the man, I felt like an outsider in my own space because I let someone flatten me. Mm. And then I looked and I said, nope, I'm not going to let you flatten me. Mm. He doesn't think we can do both. Isn't that funny? I talked about him too in his presence. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. So they know. So they know. Don't let yourself be flattened. Express That's yourself. <laughs> That's good. And so maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, a broader question though, which is what is black centeredness and what does that actually look like in our institutions practically? And maybe we, sh- we should share a little bit more of that. But I think we're out of time, bro. Too many trains passing by, man. <laughs> On the next episode of Pass the, the mic. mic. We'll see y'all soon.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.